Good morning. Good morning. Welcome on our second Sunday of Advent, and it's a very special Sunday for me. We and, and for us, um, we have as our special guest this morning, uh, Reverend Dr. Sheldon Sorga and his wife, the Reverend Dr. Tammy Weems, and they are here to. Sheldon will deliver the message in a in a, in a few minutes, but at the end of the service they're going to perform one of their original Christmas songs. Sheldon, and, I, and, I'll, and now I'll, 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 I'll uh, gush a little bit, is a wonderful pianist. And, and I, have, I have not heard you sing, Tammy, so I am looking forward to it. But I can tell you that at, at, whether it's a presbytery meeting or whether it's going to serve, Sheldon can, Sheldon can just sit down and play. And so it's a gift to have both of you here this day for a number of reasons. But Here's something he told me as we were walking in the hall, that this will be his last sermon as general minister of the Presbytery. Though his last day is December the 31st, this is your last sermon, and it's here at Mount Pleasant. And if you don't mind, I'm recording. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. So, but it's, it is, uh, it's, I'm going to say one more story about you, and this was that when you came here for my installation. You know, your parents, and you know that you coach your children when they're going to meet special guests and whatnot. Well, we coached the young lady that's sitting next to you. And so she was standing in the hall, and she walks, she, you walk out of my office and just pop there. And you know, she's a petite woman, and you are a very tall man. She goes to her mother, is that the big bird? <laughs> I will never, I will never forget that. <laughs> so, but uh, once again, welcome. And uh, so we have scripture readings this day. We have three passages to be read this day: an Old Testament, a Gospel, and then the Epistle. And as we will do it, I will read the first readings, and then I will invite uh, the Reverend Doctor to the pulpit to take that last reading and then pause for a moment for the, uh, the interlude of music and then we look forward to your message this day. Let us pray. Let us pray. Oh God, by your Spirit, tell us what we need to hear and show us what we ought to do to obey Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So as I said, I have two readings here. One of the readings is Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. The other is from Matthew, Matthew 3. But this reading from Isaiah and, and, and the introduction would be, in a time where there is not much hope, Isaiah tells the southern kingdom of Judah that even from the stump that is left will come new life and a true servant of God. Hear these words. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod in his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, 
The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear they shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now the gospel. The gospel according to Matthew. As an introduction, a true servant like John the baptizer does whatever is needed to prepare the way of the Lord. Consider, how are we called? Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of, the, of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John, who wore clothing of camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem, all of Judea, were going out to him and, 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 and all the region, all the region along the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children, children of Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his, carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our reading from the book of Romans comes from the end of the book. It's been a big, long legal argument that Paul has laid out throughout the book of Romans, starting with the problem of sin that afflicts us all, whether it's sins of the flesh or sins of pride, all of us falling short of God's glory, and then lifting up that we have a Savior in Jesus Christ who saves us without condition, who gives us a brand new life and fills us with the Spirit of God so that we can live differently. And as it comes to the end of the book, as we come to chapter 15 of Romans, Paul is closing up with some instructions about how to live 
now that we, who are sinners who have been redeemed, have a new lease on life. What does it mean to live a spirit-filled life? And in that, in that uh, passage, we read from Romans chapter 15, verses 4 through 13. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another, in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for you among the God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will confess your name among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse shall come, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you know that I like to use popular songs for my sermon titles. And what I was drawn to was a song that some of us will remember, Hopelessly Devoted to You by Olivia Newton-John. Remember that one? Um, but it's not hopeless, it's hopeful. Not hopeful in the sense of wishful, but hopeful in that fullness of hope. That we are full of hope, and in that fullness of hope we are devoted to each other. So please take the twist on the title. Forgive me, Olivia. May you rest in peace wherever you are. And uh, God be with you. Today's topic is about hope. Did you notice in the scripture that I read that the word hope occurs over and over again? It is an Advent theme, isn't it? It's the theme of the first Sunday of Advent traditionally. But it carries into our reading in the second Sunday as well. Paul says, 
that he prays that we might abound in hope. Not have just a little bit of it, but have a lot of it. Abound, overflow with hope. And then he offers, if we're careful to notice, a prescription for hopefulness. It can be gotten through certain practices. There is a prescription for hope. It's not simply a condition that we have because we're wired to be hopeful people. Sometimes we think it's just a matter of your personal disposition. But that's not the kind of hope that Paul is talking about. You know, there are medicines to treat hopelessness, to treat depression, and I'm glad for those medications for people who need them. But this is not about dulling the pain of hopelessness. It's about building a robust hopefulness. There are exercises that Paul identifies that help us to become a people of hope. And God knows in this world there is a need for a people of hope to stand up and show the world what a difference it makes to be a follower of Jesus. Now in the previous chapter, Paul lists hope as one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the key fruits. If the Spirit is in you, the Spirit will bear hope as a fruit in your life. But in this chapter, he talks about things we can do to help that process along. We also read about hope in another one of his letters where he says it's one of the three abiding things that lasts forever. Faith, hope, and love. But nowhere in all of the scriptures that talk about hope is there something quite like we get in Romans 15 that gives us clues about how to cultivate hopefulness. And so I'd like for us to look at that, the prescription for cultivating hopefulness. The first step that Paul identifies is at the beginning of the reading. It is, be attentive to the Holy Scriptures. They nourish hope. Now, when he's talking about Scriptures, he doesn't have the New Testament. All he has is the Old Testament. We tend to think of the Old Testament as being all about law and condemnation. But Paul finds something different there. He finds hope. And the way he does that is he reads the whole of the Old Testament, but he focuses his primary energy in one place. He actually shows how that works right in our reading because he quotes four passages from the Old Testament as part of the uh, text that we read. Three of those four are from the book of Psalms. And if you look across Paul's writings, he often quotes from the Old Testament. And the majority of those quotes are from the book of Psalms. And so I would say that not only is Paul saying the scriptures bring hope to you, but specifically the Psalms are sources of hope. We used to say an apple a day keeps the doctor away. I'm going to see the doctor for my annual physical tomorrow. Maybe I didn't eat enough apples. I don't know. <laughs> but... Uh, I like to put a little twist on that and say a psalm a day keeps the devil away. A psalm a day keeps the devil away. Paul lived in the psalms. Not only Paul, but think about this. The psalms were Jesus' prayer book. That's what Jesus prayed. That's what all the people in that day prayed as their prayer book. And so, in praying the psalms and reading the psalms, we're praying with Jesus. We talk about praying in the name of Jesus. We, at the end of a prayer, we say, in Jesus' name. 
Really, praying in the name of Jesus is best done by praying with Jesus, and he prays the Psalms. All of them. That's how to get to the heart of Jesus. And that's how to get to the heart of hope. Now, the Psalms are not all a bed of roses. It's not all sunshine and bliss. In fact, there are more psalms of lament, more psalms of struggle, than there are of praise and victory. Voicing our laments and taking them to the Lord in prayer is just as critical for building hope as is voicing our praises and thanksgivings. The key to building hope is not turning off the lament, but directing it appropriately. We need to lament. There's lots to lament in our lives and in the world. Take it to the Lord in prayer, the hymn writer says. Take it to the Lord in prayer. When we take our laments to the Lord, that generates hope in us. We see that in Jesus when he prayed a psalm of lament. Did you know he did that? When he was hanging on the cross, right at the end. He's hanging on the cross, ready to die. He cries out. And we all know this. He's quoting verbatim from Psalm 22 when he prays, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Psalms were in the very fiber of his being to the end. And so it was that the Psalms were the soundtrack of his life. I talked about a song that some of us recognize maybe as part of the soundtrack of our life about being hopelessly devoted to our loved one, right? But the Psalms were Jesus' soundtrack. And so the first step to abundant hope is to live in the Psalms. Pray them regularly. The second step that Paul discloses in our text is the one I want to focus on a little bit more, and that is Hope is generated by our living rightly with each other. We cannot abound in hope if we are at odds with each other. This message is more countercultural today than it has been at any time in my life because no time in my lifetime has seen as much polarization and people standing away from friends and family angry at them because we have politicized issues that should not be political at all. And because they're politicized, we get excited in all the wrong ways when we talk about things like racial justice, like COVID, abortion, sexuality, gun violence, refugee welcome, climate change, energy resources, environmental concerns, law enforcement, you know the list. And we can't talk about it without immediately thinking Democrat or Republican, progressive or conservative, on the right side or on the wrong side. And we've lost our capacity to engage one another about things that really matter. There is more division in our society today than any time that I can remember. And it's sharper and angrier. There is nothing more countercultural than Paul's advice to say, you need to live in harmony with each other if you're going to be a people of hope. 
Now that doesn't mean that we don't have disagreements within our family. If you notice in the Bible, every family has disagreements. There's no family in the Bible that doesn't have some dysfunction in it. I take that as actually some encouragement because then when I have dysfunction in my family, I don't feel so judged because godly people in the Bible had dysfunctional families. It's okay. The fact of the matter is that they did not depart from each other because they had struggles. The overall message of the Bible is this. God wins. Right? If you could just absolutely capture the essence of the total message of the Bible, God wins. We all agree. God is love. That's also the message of the Bible, right? Well, if God wins and God is love, that means that love wins in the end. Nothing creates hopefulness better than living in the conviction that love wins in the end. And that's what Paul is getting at in our text. The conviction that love wins keeps us walking together even when we have disagreements. Let's, if love wins in the end, let's get into the habit now of being on the side of that which prevails in the long run. Align our behavior today with our future destiny. Actions of love flow with the tide of where everything is headed. Actions of division work against it. And so Paul talks in verses 5 and 6 about the importance of living in harmony with each other so that we can glorify God with one voice. Now I like that he talks about harmony. Harmony is a beautiful thing. Tammy and I are getting prepared to sing the Messiah at a concert in the city in a couple of weeks and talk about intricate harmonies. Uh, but all of those voices are so individual. We'll get back to that in a minute, but I just want to talk about what happens when we let ourselves no longer be in harmony amid our differences. I had the horrible experience of going through a church split. I don't know if you've ever been through a church split, but if you have, you know what I'm talking about. It just tears the fabric of life apart. Nothing good came out of it. We had a congregation of about a thousand people, robust, lots of good stuff going on, and a disagreement arose among the elders of the church. And rather than finding a way to worked together through their disagreement. They took themselves so seriously that they decided they needed to go in separate ways and they formed three congregations. None of those congregations are around today. They're all gone. Numbers of the people in, those church, in that church left the church altogether because they were disillusioned and wounded by the experience of people being so committed to differing visions that they could not work and walk together any longer and it was such a dramatic experience for me that it drove me to the Presbyterian church because that was a non-denominational church and I decided we needed some accountability we didn't have any and I'm so glad that God brought me 
to the Presbyterian Church. That was 40 years ago. I've never looked back, never regretted it. Thanks be to God. But back to that image of harmony. It's not an image of unison. We tend to think that unity is about unison. Everybody's singing the same tune. But if you go back to the Messiah, Tammy and I practice together at home. Uh, she sings one part and I sing another. And we're singing at different times. We're singing different pitches. And we're looking at each other. When do you come in? When do I come in? It is really clear that the artistry of it all takes these different pitches and these different melodies and these different things and weaves them, different rhythms, weaves them together in a way that the whole is amazing. God is the weaver. We are the voices. The key to the harmony is that we are together. We may not, singing our part, know how our part fits with the other. Or we may not, listening to someone else's part, know how their part fits with ours. That doesn't matter. The main thing is, we're together. We're in the same room. And God weaves what we do in all of our different voices, from all of our different perspectives, into one thing. And so Paul uses that word, if you noticed in verse 5, that we live in harmony. So that with one voice, the one voice being the voice that God gives us, we may glorify God. And then he moves to one of the most critical verses in the whole of the Bible. If we want to understand what Jesus is all about. It's verse 7. And it says this. Therefore, welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you. This is part of the prescription for hope. Welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you. How has Jesus welcomed you? Did Jesus take you just as you are? Did me. Bet he did for you too. Think about Jesus and Zacchaeus. How did Jesus welcome Zacchaeus? You know, you think, well, well, Zacchaeus should have been the one to welcome Jesus into his home, but no, Jesus was the welcomer. Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. Well, Zacchaeus was a vile tax collector. And he says, I want to be with you. Let's hang out for a little while. And he did. Welcome is an active thing. It's not merely putting up with someone. It's not mere tolerance. I don't think the word tolerance is anywhere in the Bible. Tolerance may be something that is helpful when you're jammed into an airplane seat next to someone who's bigger than they should be and they're in the seat right next to you. You tolerate them for as long as you have to, right? The Bible doesn't talk about our relationship as one of tolerating, but of welcoming. Welcoming one another. That means reaching out. That means engaging. It's not about resigning ourselves to being together with people because we have to be, we've got no choice. It's far better, far, far more robust. And maybe we can talk first of all about welcoming strangers. That's a good place to talk about welcome. Most churches think of themselves as welcoming communities. I'm sure we do here and we should. But sometimes I think it's hard for us to appreciate what someone coming in from the outside might feel when they come into our space. They see people who know each other well and they may feel a little bit like wedding crashers. 
that have come in and everybody's having a party and we're sort of in the middle of it but looking at it from the outside. Tammy and I had an experience like that one time at a church in another city where this church was billed as the friendliest church in that presbytery. We get there and there's nothing but buzz. People are visiting and the pastor can hardly get started because people are just so full of life and energy before the service and then after the service. You know what? Nobody actually said anything to us but hello. No conversation. We were inside a very friendly church and yet we did not feel the welcome. One church that I served as pastor had a reputation for being sort of an unwelcoming church. I began to understand a little bit of the problem when a few weeks after I had gotten there, one of the members of the church died and I had to do the funeral for her. And I didn't know her because I was just brand new. So I thought, well, I'm going to uh, ask the person who sits next to her on the pew, tell me a little bit about her. She was a single woman, didn't have any family. Uh, tell me a little bit about her so I can craft a eulogy that is uh, something worth giving. And the guy, who is a retired minister, by the way, quite a gregarious guy, said, well, you know, I don't really know her. We sit together, but we never say anything except hello. He said, really? Well, yeah, he's got his family, and she had, well, she didn't really have anybody, but that's just the way we are at church. Ah, <sighs> what do we do? We think they were lovely people at that church. They were lovely people. They loved each other. But in small little family units. So I said, why don't we take the session and divide up the church like a checkerboard into sections. And each session member gets assigned one of those squares. And you make sure that you have a conversation with everybody or that someone that you designate has a conversation with everybody in that square before you leave church. So that it's not just hello and goodbye, but hey, how are you doing? Tell me a little bit about your week. And we get to welcome. Because welcome involves conversation. It's not just about saying hello, ma'am, sir, goodbye, bless you. Now Paul lifts up the Gentiles in today's text as an example of the challenge of welcome. And the reason for that is he was in a worshiping community, the Jewish community, that excluded Gentiles from their inner life. The Gentile could visit and sit on the back. And if they really wanted to become a member, they could. And then we would take them in. But we didn't take any pains to reach out to Gentiles. And Paul says, now look back at the Psalms. And he quotes them. And look back at the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes them and says, Do you see how God has Gentiles in mind as part of the community? Why would we turn someone away that God has accepted? My mission as the leader of this presbytery has been pretty simple. And that is to challenge our church, our churches, individually and collectively, to demonstrate in how we live, the truth of the gospel that we proclaim. And that is that God in Jesus Christ reconciles us to God and to each other. God reconciles. That's the core of the gospel. And our challenge is to demonstrate that, not just to say it. 
people who are outside the church say more than any other the reason they don't come to the church is because the church is a hypocritical place. They talk about loving one another, but they don't do it. They talk about reconciliation, but they're hateful. And I want to defend the church and say, no, if you got to know us, we're not really that way. But then I wonder, when we divide from each other, and we go our separate ways and we say bad things about each other, what is the message that we're giving? God has given us a Savior who has reconciled us to God. And when we are joined together to God, we are joined together to each other. The history that lies ahead of us is for us to be together. Our question is, are we going to live like we believe that that's where we're headed? Or are we going to chafe against that for as long as we're alive and finally, in death, give in to it? You see, a community where there is real welcome generates hope. Not long after we started that business of dividing the church up into a grid, and I started bothering the elders about, are you doing your job? The temperature began to change. And the church began to grow. It wasn't because of my great preaching, but something was happening. We were beginning to be a little bit more welcoming. And because of that, hope grew. And wherever there is hope, people are gone. May the God of all hope abound for you in hopefulness that you may live in a way that draws the world into the hope of the gospel. Nourish that hope in living together in harmony, dear friends. This is the word of the Lord for you today. So as I was, uh, I have had the blessing to to work under two, uh, either general presbyter or general minister. I worked for years under Carson Ryan, and then I met you, and and they two exceptional leaders, and I just have learned so much from how you handle difficult situations, how you step into the challenges of the current event. Your, your words, you, you make sure that they are contemporary to the moment when you address us with your letters, your weekly letters. And I, I find it exceptional. But the one, the one funny thing that I had is that when I, when the first time I met you was at the examination. Remember, I gathered at your office, okay? As I'm walking down the hall, somebody whispers to him, his last name is pronounced Sorga. I'm like, Why? Why would somebody tell me that? You know, and I'm like, going, and, and I go, I don't know who I'm getting ready to meet if I need to be coached on how to pronounce your name. <laughs> so I walk into this packed room and I'm going, oh boy, I wasn't ready for this. And he's sitting at the head of the table, and I walk in and I go, well, he doesn't, he doesn't look bad. <laughs> And, and, and I, but I'm waiting for the other shoe to fall. But heaven was heaven blessed me that day, and it has been a wonderful time working in your presbytery. It's challenges because you know we all went through the pandemic together. But I just want to sing your praises and just let you know that I am grateful for having worked in your presbytery. Now.
we get a special gift. And so I'm going to shut my mouth. And simply, if, if there's an introduction, Tammy, if there's if there need for an introduction, please, I'm going to step aside, sit down on the front pew. But take it from here. I have left it in the bulletin that you would do the charge and blessing. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> well, you got me a little choked up now. <laughs> sort of coming to the end of... Um, <laughs> Emotional. Sorry. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I'm also very proud of Sheldon and um, it's a joy to be his partner and um, one of the ways in which we have nourished each other spiritually is through songwriting. And so this is a song that's uh, special to us and um, I hope it will be special to you and uh, it tells a little bit about how Jesus comes to us at Christmas but how the hope that we find in Christ is with us in how we see each other. So sort of a continuation of Sheldon's message today as well. So thank you for having us with you today. Oh, mm-hmm. 
of Christmas when in Christ we're reconciled. Being reconciled means that we've got some differences. If everyone is in agreement, you don't need to be reconciled, right? It's only if you've got some differences. It's only when we're with people who don't think like us or look like us that we need to be reconciled. And God says, in Christ we are reconciled to each other, to God, and to the whole of humanity. Go from this place, living in that reconciliation. Be the joy of Christmas. Be the hope of Christmas. And know that as you go from this place, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will go with you and will be with you now and always. Amen.